Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rail Group On Air, presented by Railway Age and Railway Track and Structures magazines and International Railway Journal. I'm your host, Bill Wilson, and I am the editor-in-chief of RTNS Magazine, and welcome to another podcast. This is Rail Group On Air. Like a lot of those in the railroad industry, Canadian Pacific's Justin Meyer got a feel for life on the tracks through his family. His grandfather was chef for the Great Northern, and his mother worked her way up the ranks at Burlington Northern. Meyer remembers going on the road with his brother while his mother conducted training sessions. However, Meyer really got the fever for railroading when he was surrounded not by family members, but by cubicle walls. During the summers of 1997 and 1998, he was a consultant for TKDA and was outsourced to Canadian Pacific at the Class 1's U.S. headquarters in Minneapolis. Myers spent the time sorting through 100-year-old track agreements and had to figure out if the actual customers still existed. And if they did, he needed to find out if there was any changes in track along with other information. The energy in the office is what hooked Meyer. And not long after the job was over, Meyer found himself back wearing the Canadian Pacific label for good. Justin Meyer, who is now the Vice President of Engineering, is the 2021 Railway Track and Structures Magazine's Engineer of the Year. I had the chance to talk to Meyer about his illustrious career, which has been full of mission changes and what he calls intestinal fortitude. So here is my interview with RTNS Engineer of the Year for 2021, Justin Meyer. Talk about your your childhood, and 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 I don't know if you had a love for trains all the way back then, or just talk about where you grew up and and your parents, and we'll start off with that kind of question. Sure, that's an easy one. Um, so yeah, I grew up in Minnesota in the Twin Cities area. That uh, that was home for all the way through my college career. So uh, as a kid. Maybe a bit of love of trains with a with an HO model and maybe some of the things each kid had as as far as a train perspective. But I think where I became more aware of the railroad is really through my my mother and then her father. So my grandfather, my mother's dad, uh, worked at the Great Northern, and he worked for the Great Northern. Excuse me, and I think he ran between the Twin Cities and Montana as a chef back in the passenger service days. Um, I, I became more aware of that as I you know, saw his first paycheck mounted on the wall in his apartment and got some familiarity with the railroad there at a young age. And then more so when my mother uh, started working for the BN. I don't remember the exact year, but she worked for the BN before they merged with the Santa Fe. So she was part of just the Burlington Northern. Um, I know she began her career as a, you know, like an an admin or an exec admin for one of the leaders there at BN. And then after the merger, she changed roles because her boss no longer worked there, um, and she found her way into the environmental department at that point. And, and I think where the story really ties in is how my mom finished her career at the BN. I believe she finished with 16 years there at that railroad, and she finished up working as a mechanical manager in Northtown Diesel Shop. And you know she did that as, a, as both a female and someone with just a high school education. And as I became more aware of what that meant, I think as I got into my high school 
And as I thought about college and just what she'd accomplished, it also opened my eyes to the opportunities of the railroad. Um, so as I, you know, left the Twin Cities and went off to college at North Dakota State, um, I chose to go into civil engineering at that point. And, you know, from there, graduated and uh, spent a couple summers interning with a consulting firm that we did quite a bit of railroad, railroad work there as well. I worked as a surveyor and spent my summers working on railroad properties as well. So, I don't know, that, that kind of ties into, I guess, what my exposure was to railroading and then, you know, what I became aware of and, and what the railroads were uh, at that point. Do you have a memory of being with your grandfather or your mom that is involved with the railroad that kind of stands out? Um, like maybe you, you know, visited your, your mom at work or your grandfather. Or is there any memory that sticks out there? What I, what I will remember with my mom is, is we were, um, you know, in into high school years or college years, even in the summer, she would have to take trips for training purposes where she would lead training. And I remember we would take a trip, and I guess one that stands out was a trip to Alliance, Nebraska, and, and making a road trip with her, so to speak. So she had included us in her work life where, you know, my, my brother and I would go with her. My dad would stay back and work, and we would go with her. And she would work and do her work, and, you know, we'd see her at the end of the day, but we'd go and see these railroad towns, and to be honest, my brother and I golfed her. We did something to keep us busy in the afternoons, but just, I guess, that travel with her and what the requirements were the railroad for her to travel and go and how she managed that, I think, with us kids at home and, you know, making things work, so to speak. And, again, it helped just set that mindset that, yeah, my mom traveled for work and travel's part of it, and she still had a family and she still played a role and, you know, we were able to do both, I think, where she could manage her career and still raise her kids. So you said that, you know, 50, 70% of the people usually end up dropping out. And, and that's a common theme when I talk to people about, you know, going through uh, school. Um, how, did, how did you make it through that? I mean, that's a big number that does not last, you know, the, the full tenure. How, how did you make it through? Yeah, and, um, you know, maybe I'll, I'll tie a word or a phrase I, we use today where I work, and it's, I use the word intestinal fortitude. Um, and what does that word mean to me? That means there's going to be some really hard days, and there's going to be days you fail. And failing, I don't mean like an F in school, but maybe you got a, a B or a C on a test versus an A. And you don't look at it as a failure, but you just build on what you can do better. And and I really did that. And, and I don't mind if you put this in the article. It took me five years to get my quote-unquote four-year degree. I was a five-year kid. Um, I worked yeah. every summer, and I didn't go to summer school or anything. And I, I took the credits I could manage. So I really understood what my capabilities were. And then I think I maximized it, you know, based on my ability. I, I didn't try to do too much, and I didn't do too little. Um, but that word intestinal fortitude, again, you got to gut out those tough days, and I didn't quit. You know, the second year of college was my absolute hardest year. You're taking – you know, third and fourth level calculus and second level physics and things that I didn't know and love, but I knew I had to have for my degree. But once you get through that second year, your third and your fourth years, you're really into those courses that you, why you're there. They're the reason you're in college. And I think I felt, uh, and I saw the change in my grades as I, as I got more energized and really understood more why I was there and the classes made more sense. My, my grades improved and, you know, we went. So, but it all goes back to intestinal fortitude. It's, if you didn't gut it out and I, I would have given up or quit, I, I can see how it happens. Uh, and I'm not 
you know, blaming those that found something else they loved. And I think for me, once I figured out I had the intestinal fortitude to do that, I then began, I think, to find a love or a passion, begin to go back for that problem solving and, and to accomplish something. So, where did you then, where did you work? Sure. While, while you were in college. Sure. Uh, my first two summers, I worked for the city of uh, Burnsville. As a, I, I mowed or I ran uh, power lawnmowers for the city, we mowed the parks. Then my okay. third summer, I believe it was, I started working at a consulting firm uh, called TKDA. They, they still exist today out of St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, and I worked for them as a summer intern for basically, for sure, my last two summers. It's either two or three. It's probably just two because that last summer I would have been hired on as a as an engineer in training at that point. That was my first job was with TKDA once I graduated. So when you were an intern there, you did, you said, I think you mentioned that you did a lot of surveying work. Uh, Correct. You want to talk about your experience there and anything that, any memory that stands out when you were out there surveying? I think, let's see what stands out. The travel part again does, um, being on the road and working long hours. Um, you know, when we we went out surveying, whether we were traveling to Montana or northern Minnesota or Iowa, Wisconsin, wherever it was, um, you know, we went out for the week. We planned our work and long hours, long days, but we got done what we accomplished. So I think I guess that travel part, again, being away from home and just kind of learning to take care of yourself again while you're working, that stands out. I think also just maybe the type of work we did. We did a variety of work, too, whether we were surveying for bridge projects Yard expansions, wastewater treatment plants, we, the variety of things I saw, I guess, from a railroad infrastructure perspective, um, that also stands out. So then you latched onto them as an engineer in training then, correct, after graduation? Correct. How long did you work with them after graduation? Yeah, so I worked with them for, I got to think, I got hired. It's about one full year. From summer of '97 to the summer of '98. Okay. And did you? Uh, is there a project that stands out that you worked on? Um, you know that might have made an impact or anything like that. You know, I think what it ends up being, it'll tie into how I got hired at CP. The last six months of my career there, I spent as a consultant, um, outsourced or outposted to CP, working in the CP office then in downtown Minneapolis in the Sioux Line building. Um, so I was I was working in a CP office, but I was being paid as a consultant, if that makes sense. So I had to act and dress like a railroad employee, but I wasn't getting a paycheck from them yet. Um, but I think that does because those six months and me working in that CP office, I think created the opportunity to apply for the job that initially got me on the railroad. What did you do exactly in the office? Sure, it was... Um, because it was during a time when the railroad was transitioning to SAP, and I was helping sort track agreements and helping put the billable track agreements into the system so uh, for switches and tracks so the billing could take place when work was done on the track. So I was sorting through, you know, 100-year-old track agreements, and I'd have to figure out if the actual customers existed, and if they did exist, had the tracks changed at all, and then get that information ready so it could be inputted into SAP. I mean, was it during that time or maybe before that time? I mean, was that when you were really starting to say, hey, this is what I really want to do. I want to be in the railroad. 
You know, I think it was during it was during that six months. And here's what's different: um, when you work in the office of a, of a railroad, an operating office, um, working in their head office, you hear and you get more of a sense of how how things are working. And the office I worked in had a mix of both marketing people and engineering people. It was kind of a it was a cohesive office that way. There wasn't a lot of people that worked in the Sioux Line building. And I I I truly believe those six months I learned a lot listening and learned about the customer side of it you know the grain elevators the the industry tracks the uh the back tracks in chicago terminal and i think i just got more and more fascinated with just how the railroad works and what it means to be a railroad so it really was those six months but it had to be working in that environment being in that environment i think really opened my eyes to to what's there and then It'll lead right into why I wanted to come here. I think I also saw the opportunity. I worked with a lot of people who were older than I was at the time. I'll leave it at that. Um, you could see the demographics of the railroad was, you know, they hadn't hired in quite a few years. I mean, coming out of the 80s and into the 90s as, as consolidations happened and railroads, you know, they did, didn't do a lot of hiring, especially on the manager side, at least where I was at the Sioux Line building. So I saw opportunity, too, just by the age and demographics of the people I was working with. So after that office job, you actually were hired on uh, to be an official employee there at TP? I was. I basically got hired into the job I was consulting into. <laughs> so I, you know, had the same boss, I guess, that I had when I worked as a consultant. Um, I think what made the experience unique, though, is I got interviewed by a number of people, and I'll, there's an interview that stands out, and his name is Mike Hansen, and... Um, he, he retired a number of years ago, but Mike was an engineer as well, a civil engineer. So he was kind of the last stop for me to get hired. Again, I'd had probably two previous interviews at that point, and he was the final, I guess, yes or no. Now that I look back on what it meant, I don't think I quite understood the interview process at that time, but I knew I had to do one. And I just remember having, a, a, a I think, a great interview with Mike. We, we seemed to connect, and, and I'll never forget him telling me at the end of it that he was the last civil engineer they hired on the Sioux Line Railroad. And, you know, I don't know Mike's exact age, but it had to be 20-plus years ago. So there was that kind of a gap, you know, in, in engineer hiring at the railroad at that point. And that's just when I knew, you know, if I could get on the railroad and, and have an opportunity, I think I could make the best of it, and who knew where my future would take me. So can you kind of take me through your career then at DP then after you, you got this job and, and kind of go on and just tell me about your career there? Sure. Um, yep, started as an engineer in training. I stayed in a head office engineering role uh, for at least two more years. Um, I had a year and a half or so working as an environmental engineer, uh, so just jumped to a different apartment for a bit there. Uh, I left the environmental engineer job then, I, and I went to the what I would call a field job then in 02, 2002. And what that would have been was a structures uh, supervisor role. And it was at that point that I got introduced to more inspection maintenance type work, where prior to 02, it was all project work, call it. Um, and then in 02, I went to the field and had unionized employees that, that worked under me, and I worked with another structures manager. And that's where I really began to understand and learn about how, you know, the field operation side of engineering worked on the railroad. So talk, I mean, are there, can you maybe talk about a couple projects when you went out in the field that might stand out that you worked on? There's a timber bridge replacement. I don't remember the milepost, but it would have been 
on our our uh, Glenwood to to Winnipeg corridor, and we were replacing t- a timber bridge, uh, just a normal 14 foot, you know, five span timber trestle, and we were replacing it with box culverts, and it was the first project we did with our own crew. So we insourced um, the equipment rental. Uh, we utilized our own crane and we were going to tackle that one ourselves without contractor help and, and construction mm-hmm. of it. And I remember it was a, I remember because the work we did with our foreman and our, our unionized crew along with us and the work we did together, because um, the obviously from a, you know, a, a union perspective, doing their own work, avoiding contractors was there. And, you know, at the time we hadn't been introduced yet to the, the five foundations of what Mr. Harrison brought with us later, but. I just remember the amount of planning that went into that and the engagement I had and the ownership I felt with that crew. And we spent that week together as we worked under traffic to replace that timber bridge with a, with a concrete box culvert and, and did it safely and on budget. Um, and I guess looking back, it was kind of a, a foundational piece again that I was open to change. And it wasn't just we're going to do it the way we always did it. And we listened to our people. We worked together as a team, and, and we had a successful outcome. Um, you know, at the time would have been a big project for something, and now, uh, you know, things have changed a little bit in scale from where I sit today. But but that stands out. And that year, that would have probably been 04. Have you had to deal with any kind of uh, emergency work or emergency replacement, or have you just gotten lucky and haven't had to deal with any of that? I've got one I'll highlight, and I think it might be one you guys may be even highlighting for us, but it sticks out. It's a recent one. It was 2019. We had a washout of a bridge um, on our Marquette sub, which is in northern Iowa in southern mm-hmm. Minnesota, but the, br- the bridge was at mile 71.6 in the Marquette. Anyways, is that the, the Turkey River is the river that went through it, so we lost 396 feet of bridge um, right. early in the spring that year. And, and again, I know there's, there's stories floating around, but that, that one does stick out. It, again, from the teamwork, we were there, and it took us 12 and a half days to restore service. Um, just just our five foundations at work again at CP, we found assets to repurpose. You know, we came together with this time with obviously a contractor and internal resources and, and worked as a team safely to, to restore service there. So the Turkey River washout uh, in 2019, I think it was March of 2019 to be specific, March 14th. Um, and it took us 12 and a half days to put that back together. So that one comes to mind, again, kind of a natural disaster. There there was also floods of 2011 <laughs> that come yeah, to okay. mind, too. Um, in North Dakota was something. Anyways, I'll never forget that summer either. Uh, that was June, July in, in and around the Minot area. Again, historic flooding in and around Minot that, that took us out of service for a number of weeks. Those Those two events, I'd say, really stick out. And what was the work involved during the flooding? What did you have to do for that? Sure. We were restoration of uh, washed-out track embankment. And I think what made it unique was the it was um, the, the length of time the river was flooded. The water didn't recede quickly, so we still had the impacts of washed-out track, but we had to figure out how to restore the track while it was still submerged in water. Um, and it was a slow recede. It, I, I just remember it took weeks for the water to go down. So, yeah, the challenge was the washout that occurred initially with the quick rise in water, and then the challenge was the water did not recede quickly. And you know, figuring out ways to to work safely and restore the track structure 
um, while there was still both water over the top of rail and then as it got down below top of rail to come back in and, and quickly restore service. What So what was the solution then for that when you were waiting for the water to recede but you still had to work on it? Yep, the uh, couple things, I guess. The, the solution was the type of equipment we had. So we had multiple work locations at all these different sites. Um, I think that, that washout spread out over 20 or 25 miles. Um, the, yeah, the solution was is the type of material, the larger rock we use, we're able to source. And again, we're in the middle of North Dakota, which is a more prairie area, so sourcing rock was a challenge. But once we sourced the rock we had, we had it was distributed to the multiple work locations and then just slow and steady working around the clock, you know, working from the toes of the embankment up and, and reconstructing the track, you know, track bed structure there. And then once the water was down at a point we could cut rail, then we, we laid panels where we had to lay panels. So it was the, the work ahead to prep for when the water got to a point we could replace the track panels and then replacing the track panels efficiently and putting the track back in service. So. At this time, we are going to jump ahead in the interview to a point where Meyer talks about the importance of E. Hunter Harrison and Keith Creel and how both CEOs brought about crucial change at critical times. Uh, we'll never forget. We, we get to Calgary in, uh, right around early July of 2012, and um, the proxy is complete, and there's going to be a change in leadership and a new CEO coming to our company. And we, I think, as leaders, there's a group of general managers and hires summoned to Calgary. I think it was, I remember the day, it was July 4th, um, 2012, and that's when I first got introduced to Mr. Harrison. And it was a, you know, a similar discussion. He looked around the room at all the leaders in the room and said, similar to college, some of you won't be here when we get a year, two years, three years down this road. And it's not because you're not good people. It's not because you're not good railroaders, but if you're not willing to change, and adapt, and, and I'll fall back on that word intestinal fortitude again and, and meet up to that challenge. It's just not going to be a place for you to work. And I didn't take that as a threat. It was just, I think, the reality of what kind of changes were ahead of us at CP. We didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know. I'd always been just working at CP. Um, so, you know, you, you do what you're doing and you don't know any different. And when he came, he brought a different perspective, obviously, with, with what PSR meant, what PSR meant to us. So from that point in 2012, you know, I, there's, Many different, um, I guess, experiences I had between now and then when I moved to Calgary to to help me grow and go. So, what do you think? You know, when when Harrison came aboard, and you know, you mentioned PCR or PSR. Sorry. Um, what do you think really helped you do that that transition? It seems like that was a very important transition in CP history. There. Yep. Oh, absolutely, it, it was, and. I think as I, I think my my willingness to change again and to learn and listen to people, um, both from Mr. Harrison and Mr. Creel's perspective, they're just teachers in their own rights. They both teach completely, maybe different in style, but what they teach is, you know, they want us to learn, they want us to make decisions and understand why we do what we do. And I think the teaching aspect of that, I was willing to listen and I tried. Uh, I wasn't scared to fail. Um, you know, there's a story again about falling into our foundations and asset utilization. We're we're in St. Paul Yard. It's 2013. That's the only hump yard left on the railroad now. It's in St. Paul. It happens to be on my territory, and we got to do we got to do some work on our inbound receiver tracks. They're not long enough for the length the trains were running, so we want to take them from 
you know, whatever they were, 6,500 feet each. There's five of them total on the east end of St. Paul, and we're going to make them 10,000-foot inbound tracks. And what kind of plan are you going to do? We're, you know, we've got a yard in Chicago we don't use anymore. Can we reuse those track assets? And how are you going to do all this expansion work while the yard's still in service? And we're not taking the hump down for more than, you know, half a shift. And I think just that process of helping lead that project from an execution standpoint and I can tell you firsthand the influence Mr. Creel had with a phone call in, a, in our boardroom, and we walked him through, you know, step by step on a, on a significant cutover we had and the feedback he gave in helping us change our view from an engineering standpoint. Sometimes it isn't just about the money you can save from an engineering department when that money you're saving may impact the operating department. And there was a lesson he taught me there in a, in a very respectful way with some very tough questions that can we think differently about the work and get it done more efficiently? Yes, it might cost more initially, but when you understand what the true cost is and the impact to the railroad and not just to our engineering budget, um, it's beneficial to the company and its, and its customers. So that expansion project uh, had its challenges, but we got through it. And, you know, the only hump yard in the system kept humping cars. And we were able to extend those tracks and add a sixth track, by the way, and, and create a six-track receiver yard at St. Paul that year. So. So what were in that project, what were the challenges and key solutions on that project? Sure. Challenges were logistics. So, again, we for that new sixth track, we reallocated um, existing track panels from a different yard. They were 80-foot panels. Um, so that idea of reusing those assets, so you had to get them from Chicago to St. Paul, and then, you know, we had to get them into the receiver yard itself to unload them and place them. So just the logistics, again, of reusing the assets, placing them in, and then doing engineering work in and around an active yard, just with OTS protection, ensuring the safety of all employees, understanding what all the train movements are, you know, working day and night, because it's a 24-7 operation when we go into those cut-ins and cut-outs, and, and just the management of people, the management of work, and working in an active yard. Uh, I think those were the key challenges that we, we overcame. And that, that was a key PSR project, correct? It was absolutely was. Again, St. Paul Yard is still our only, you know, hump yard we have on this railroad. And it was just critical to the, the train length. You know, as we grew train lengths, we had to be able to receive those trains. So it, it definitely had chief operating officer, CEO oversight, you know, from that kind of importance to the operation. And again, timing's critical. I remember it being late summer, early fall. Had to get it done before the fall grain push and the yard gets busier there and you know time critical and you know everything with PSR you do you 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 do it when you have to do it you understand that the points come that the assets have to be added to or they need to be reallocated and it needs to happen yesterday because by the, by the time you're there you need it um, and it's that sense of urgency I think that I, that's what I, another phrase I'd use I learned from that early on in, in 2013 from Mr. Creel's sense of urgency just what that means and and you can still absolutely work safely so it's not about not working safely safely is just bound in everything we do but it's working with a sense of urgency with every employee having that same sense so, so you obviously mentioned that key expansion project but um what impact has psr had on your on your infrastructure um what, what have been what have, have been some of the most major impacts on your own infrastructure with psr so switches, they're, they're right. critical assets, they cost money, 
and they also happen to be the location where most prevalently we derail at our switches. So when you need them, you need them. And when you don't, what PSR taught us is it's asset utilization. And if you don't need the switch, get it out of the track. It saves you money. And, and again, most importantly, it reduces the safety risk of an incident uh, in and around the switch. And since 2012, sorry, I'm just looking for the number again. We removed 1,282 switches from this railroad property. That's mainline yard, backtrack, all of them. And of those 1,282, we've removed 550 mainline switches. Um, that's a number I never thought I'd see one day where the operating department and the engineering departments all come together and say, yeah, we don't need that asset, remove it. And again, from the cost control and the safety aspects, I think just the impact that has long-term on the only assets you have, you use, and then you maintain them at a high standard. Uh, that piece, and I think the other impact PSRs had, I think Aleth Yard is another project I'll, I'll throw out there. We did it in the fall of 2018. So Aleth would have been a previous hump yard, one of the six we had originally. I remember that, is it six or five? I think it was one of five, sorry. I think we had five hump yards originally when Mr. Harrison came. And then we went to the one hump yard in St. Paul within about a year. Um, but Aleth was a previous hump yard. It was a vacant class yard that sat empty from 20, you know, late 2012 all the way to 2018. And then in the fall of 2018, traffic patterns drove. We, we redesigned that classification yard at Alice. So we reused the real estate. We removed all the track, had to regrade it. And we created a gravity um, fed hump yard. And, and so today, if you come and see Alice, we use gravity on the head end. And there is automated switches on the switching end of it. So, but it's all run by gravity. There's no retarders or anything else to control speeds. It's a gravity-controlled yard. So I guess you'd call it a poor man hump yard, but it, it runs much cheaper than a full hump just because you don't have all the moving parts on the uh, right. on the king switch. And if that makes sense, so we were able to take Aleth again in about four months, and we built 45,000 feet of track. We installed 52 turnouts. We put dual-controlled switches in on the head end. We designed our own software, and, and we put a new classification yard in service in about four months. Um, which again, in my career, I never thought we'd even, didn't even know how we were going to do that when we got challenged to do it, but we figured out a way again, using internal and external resources and, and we're able to deliver that project. So, so again, that's this, the, the philosophy of you might retire a piece of property. You don't need it now. And then the day comes when the business changes and you, you do something with that property. And, and that's what we did with Ayla. That's in Calgary, by the way, I should tell you, Ayla, Calgary. So if you can forecast the next 10 to 20 years, what is there going to be? A, is there going to be a prime technology or a prime concept that you think will carry the engineering sector on the railroad through the next 10 to 20 years? Um, probably going to answer that in two parts. I'm going to start it by saying I think the next 10 to 20 years, and it's what I've been focused on the last three or four years, and you know, as Mr. Creel is, is people and people and people. Um, uh, yes, I, you know, what the technology in the future holds 10 or 20 years from now, and, you know, could there be autonomous trains? Could there be things like that in the future? Sure, they could. I would be crazy to say there probably won't be. But between now and then, the people that work at the railroad, uh, no matter what department they work in, and just the value and the criticalness of people and how we operate and what they bring each day, they make the difference. People make the difference in PSR. 
Um, people make the difference in moving trains every day. And, and I think about just people development over the next 20, 10 to 20 years. Like I know one of the legacies I want to leave is how we develop our people and we're trying to do it the right way. And, you know, whether that's track inspector training, foreman training and, and leadership training for all employees. Um, we use consequence leadership as our term here for our leadership training that Mr. Creel introduced. I just think the ability to teach and empower people is just critical to at least us here at CP and what the future will bring. And I think with that said, we know the future is going to bring technology. We, the changes we've seen just in the last, you know, one to five years, if I use that frame of reference with some of the autonomous geometry car work we're doing here. And, you know, I even just think about, again, just that automation idea with what bots are doing in the office with, with data and what artificial intelligence is doing with data absolutely the next 10 to 20 years we'll see changes i'm sure i won't believe um, down the road when it comes to the use of data and how we can better predict maintenance and how we better put our resources in the right place at the right time um, it'll all be there but i think it's all done in conjunction with our people Yes, Justin Meyer certainly is a man of the people and one who can roll with the punches with that intestinal fortitude. I'd like to thank Justin Meyer for joining me for this podcast. He is our 2021 RTNS Engineer of the Year. For Rail Group on Air, I'm Bill Wilson, and I will see you down the line.